Um, as many of you know, um, most of you probably know, that we've gone without a pastor for several months now at Seven Hills. We've recently uh, voted to affirm Andy Haynes as our next pastor. And so he'll be officially starting the next couple of weeks. Um, and he just got back from traveling for the holidays, so I get to uh, start his new sermon series that he's picked for us. Um, and so since we just finished our series on Advent, um, exploring the anticipation of the birth of the Messiah, Andy thought it would be appropriate for us to continue that story and to look at the life and ministry of Christ. And so over the next several months, or the ne- yeah, the next several months, all the way up until Easter, we'll be walking through the book of Mark, covering one chapter a week. And so each week will look a little bit different, um, because one chapter is a lot, uh, so sometimes we'll cover the entire chapter, we'll kind of skim through it, other times we'll kind of focus in on a specific section. But we want to encourage you to read along with us um, a chapter each week, especially those weeks that we don't cover the entire chapter. And so uh, we have a couple of resources available for you. We have some reading guides out in the lobby that have uh, each chapter listed with every date that we're going to be covering which chapter, so you can, you know, which chapter to be reading that week to read along to prepare for Sunday. And then we also have these scripture journals that are available in the back, which is something that we've never done before. That's a really cool resource that we have. And so uh, what those are, they're little journals that uh, have the entire book of Mark in them. But um, on each page, so you, when you open it up on one side, uh, that has the scripture, and on the other side there's space for notes. And so um, this is uh, a really great tool that I'd encourage you to pick up if you haven't already. You know, they're small, they're easy to take with you. They've got plenty of room for notes for you to take notes at home while you're reading and then to bring it with you on Sunday and take notes in the sermon. Um, so, those, like I said, those are in the lobby if you want to pick those up on your way out this morning, or even if you want to duck out right now and grab one before we dig in. Um, so, uh, like I said, Andy's going to take over next week, um, but I'm kicking off today in Mark chapter 1, and so we'll be in the first 20 verses of Mark this morning. Um, so if you're using one of the scripture journals, it's right there at the beginning, because we're at the beginning, it's on page 6. Uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles in our pews, you can find it on page 836. Um, Yep, so before we dig in, uh, I just want to take a minute to kind of set up some context for the Gospel of Mark since we're starting a new book. Um, So Mark is one of the four Gospels that we find in the New Testament that record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so each was written by a different author with a different intended audience. And so Mark is one of the shortest of the four Gospels, and church history tells us that it was written by a man who's also known as John Mark, uh, who we read about in Acts. And so John Mark worked closely with Peter and recorded his direct experiences with Jesus in this Gospel. And so Mark was written primarily to a Roman audience uh, with the intent to prove that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Uh, And since because the Romans uh, were largely unfamiliar with Scripture, Mark uses um, a collection of specific narratives and events of Jesus' life to prove that uh, Jesus was who Mark claims him to be. And so at times, Mark can feel a little bit rushed and choppy, uh, but it's structured in a way that succinctly shows us that Jesus is who Mark says he is. So, who does he say he is? That's an important place to start. So, let's take a look at the first verse in chapter 1 to see. The first one says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, as far as introduction goes, that's pretty simple. Uh, you know, Mark isn't like uh, the other gospels. He doesn't give us a genealogy. We don't get a birth story. We don't get any kind of long, drawn-out introduction. He simply tells us, this book's about Jesus. That's it. And then he drives right into the rest of it. Um, and, but since this is the only time that we hear directly from the author, you know, who he believes Jesus to be, uh, we need to take a moment and, and um, look at this verse a little bit closer because the rest of the book is spent providing evidence of this claim. This verse really sets up the entire uh, rest of what we're going to be covering over the next several months. And so there's three things that we learn uh, right here in this short sentence. The first one is that Mark is about Jesus. Um, it says this is the beginning of the gospel or good news of Jesus. second thing is that Mark claims that Jesus is the Christ. 
And so the term Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah, or the anointed one who is prophesied to come establish God's kingdom on earth. And then thirdly, not only was Jesus the Messiah, but Mark also tells us that he's the son of God. And so this phrase communicates both Christ's humanity and his divinity, that Jesus was God in the flesh. So to rephrase the verse, the book of Mark is about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, who has come to bring God's kingdom on earth. And those are some pretty, pretty big claims about Jesus, and Mark wastes no time diving right in to let us see them for ourselves. So let's walk through the rest of the passage and explore three things this morning that I think we learn about Jesus in the first half of Mark 1. First of all, Jesus is the unexpected Messiah. So remember that uh, Mark was written primarily to a Roman audience who wouldn't have been super familiar with scripture. So he doesn't spend a lot of time quoting um, Old Testament scripture, but he does want to make it clear here at the beginning that the story that he's about to tell is one that has been prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. And the events that he's about to share are the events that the entire Old Testament points to. So let's keep reading in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So in these verses, we see that it was prophesied that God would send a messenger who would come to prepare the way of God to bring his kingdom through the Messiah. He then goes on to introduce us to both the messenger and the Messiah. And the people that he's going to introduce us to aren't really the people that we would expect. And so one thing I want us to uh, see this morning is that God loves to do and use the unexpected. You know, we just wrapped up our Advent series highlighting the birth of Christ, and Dr. Dorset pointed out several things that weren't what we would humanly expect about that story. You know, God himself came down as a baby. That baby was born to a seemingly insignificant couple in an insignificant town. Not only that, but that baby was born in a dirty stable. And then the first people that God decides to share this news with are some common shepherds. Like, none of this is how we would expect the God of the universe to make his appearance on earth. And we see in Mark that God continues to do the unexpected, which we'll see all throughout this passage. So the first person that we're introduced uh, to is the messenger, John the Baptist. But John isn't the messenger that we would expect. Let's read in uh, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So the Messiah has finally come to redeem God's people and establish his kingdom on earth. And God sends a messenger to prepare, to prepare the way and announce his coming. You know, we would expect that to be somebody pretty important and respected, probably somebody with influence and a large platform to get the message out. But that's not what we find here. You know, rather than an important person in a respectable position, the person that Mark introduces, introduces us to seems a little crazy, if we're honest. You know, he's decided to move out into the wilderness. You know, he's got some questionable attire that he wears. You know, his diet consists of bugs and honey. Like, this isn't what we would expect. Um, and Mark tends to keep things pretty brief and to the point. So when he gives us details, um, he gives them for a reason. He makes sure to give us these details about who Mark is. This isn't the type of man that we would expect God to send to announce his coming. Because if we were to think from a human perspective, that sounds like a terrible idea. So, like, imagine that you were in charge of hiring the person who was going to be God's messenger. You know, most of us, we would hire the guy that shows up for his interview, you know, in a nice suit and tie. He's got the good credentials. He's got the marketing degree. He's got a good resume. He's a good networker. Like, most of us, if we went to the lobby to, uh, to see John sitting there ready for his interview, like, we'd call security. Like, this guy just sitting there in his camel skin clothes, munching on a bag of locusts, got some dried honey in his beard. Like, this is not the man that is right for this job. Like, that seems the absolute opposite person that we would pick. You know, who would listen to a guy like this? Um, what we see is that um, actually a lot of people listen to him. 
Let's read in verse 5 again. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by, baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So again, God doesn't work in the way that we would expect him to. In fact, he loves using unexpected people and unexpected situations for his glory. And one reason that he does this is so that we know that he's in control. You know, we would expect the guy with the marketing degree to do a good job, but only God could get his message out through the nutty guy in the camel skin. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God proves this time and time again in the Bible, and we see it multiple times in this passage as the story unfolds in ways that we wouldn't expect. And I think that's a challenge for us not to be arrogant enough to put God in a box. You know, it's a challenge for us to never say, like, oh, God could never use them, or even to say, oh, God could never use me. It's a challenge for us to say, like, God's not at work in this situation. And it's a challenge for us to avoid making a safe, comfortable, a safe, comfortable God in our head who thinks and acts in line with our worldview rather than aligning our worldview to the God of Scripture. And God loves to prove his power and glory by doing unexpected things and using unexpected people. So now that we've met God's messenger, let's take a look at his message. John was calling people to repentance, to confess their sins in preparation of the coming Messiah. His baptism was symbolic, an outward sign of humility, giving evidence to the inward change of their hearts. But his primary message was to point everyone to the one to come. Pick up in verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So who's this person that John is talking about? Well, again, Mark, quick and to the point. Uh, he introduces, to him, introduces us to him right away. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by, the jo- by John in the Jordan. So Mark makes it pretty clear just by the order um, of his writing that the prophesied Messiah, the one who John the Baptist came to prepare the way for, was Jesus. And again, he doesn't give us very much detail here about Jesus at this point, but the one thing that he does tell us is actually pretty significant. He says that Jesus came from Nazareth. Now, we know from verse 1, this whole book is about Jesus. And the first thing that we learn about Jesus in this narrative is that he's from Nazareth. And while that may not mean much to us today, um, it would have actually been pretty striking to the original readers because Nazareth was a small and insignificant town in the middle of nowhere. In John's gospel, uh, somebody actually asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth actually reminds me of a small town near uh, where I grew up. So if you don't know, uh, I'm from Arkansas originally. And so the city I grew up in, there was a small town about 30 minutes away called Wiener, Arkansas. And so, um, yes, thank you, Missy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... Wiener, Arkansas um, is this little tiny farming community out in the middle of nowhere. It has a population of less than 800. Um, It's not a place you go to. It's a place you drive through and, like Missy, laugh at the name on the sign as you drive by. Um, In fact, that's literally when I looked up the uh, population online. That's the only thing Wikipedia says about it. It says, uh, let me find it. It says, Wiener has been noted for its unusual name. That's it. That's all they're known for. Nothing happens here. Nobody important comes from here. Most people have never even heard of it. And so that was all true until a couple of years ago. Um, But some of you actually may have heard of it uh, if you watch The Bachelor, which I hope you don't. But if you do, (laughs) you may have actually heard of it uh, because a couple of years ago, a girl that I actually went to college with found herself on The Bachelor. uh, And she happens to be from Wiener, Arkansas. Uh, And so suddenly this this girl from this podunk town in the middle of nowhere finds herself on national TV. She, like, made it pretty far in the show. She was apparently, like, an audience favorite. So um, actually wound up, like, she made it to, like, the end, I don't, I don't watch The Bachelor, I don't know how it works, but made it towards the end, so they actually like, sent a camera crew to Wiener, Arkansas to do a whole segment 
so suddenly, this small town that nobody's ever heard of is on national TV. And this is, you know, you wouldn't expect this. Nobody expects somebody from Wiener, Arkansas to make their way on national television to become semi-famous. I just look, she has like 780,000 Instagram followers. Like, this doesn't happen. It's bizarre. In the same way, it's bizarre that Jesus would come from Nazareth. Like, nothing happened in Nazareth. Most people probably would have never heard of it. And the original readers, readers of this book are learning that the person that Mark claims to be the Messiah, the one who's going to bring God's kingdom on earth, came from this small, insignificant town that nobody comes from. Again, God loves to challenge expectations. And the first thing that we see Jesus do is to come to John to be baptized. And this also doesn't seem to make sense. Like, why would the Messiah need to be baptized? Why would the sinless Savior need John's baptism of repentance of sin? In other accounts of the story, we actually see that John originally refuses to baptize Jesus. But there's a reason why Mark records this as the first thing that Jesus does in his gospel. In Jesus' baptism, he identifies with humanity. He steps into our sinfulness. We see this mirrored at the end of Mark when we, see, we find Christ on a cross taking on the punishment for our sins, not his. One commentator sums it up well by saying, it is no more odd for Jesus to be baptized in the Jordan River than for him to hang on the cross of Calvary as the sinless and spotless Son of God. And Jesus' baptism was also important because it connected his ministry with the message that John the Baptist was proclaiming. Jesus was the one to come. And what we see happen next in Mark is the first of his accounts that show that Jesus was who Mark originally says that he was in verse 1. So let's continue reading verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open by the Spirit. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> let's start. Up. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So here we see God tear open the heavens and announce that Jesus is his beloved Son. We again see this event mirrored at the end of the book uh, when the temple veil is torn. It's actually that same word, the tearing open the heavens and the tearing of the veil. It's the same word in Jesus' death. And so while this is happening, we also see uh, that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And so it's in this moment of Jesus' baptism that we see a remarkable display of the Trinity. We see God the Son being baptized in humility and submission as God the Father tears open the heavens and speaks with power and authority while God the Spirit descends in peace and gentleness. And we see all these expressions of God's being and character happening at the exact same moment. And so just as the, uh, the Spirit's dissension on the disciples in the book of Acts marks the beginning of the church's mission, here we see that the Spirit's dissension on Christ marked the beginning of his mission on the earth. And what we see is that Jesus came to fight, which is our second point. Pastor John Piper says this, When Jesus was baptized along with all repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this, very, uh, for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. You know, I think we tend to have a pretty fluffy view of Jesus these days. You know, we have to think of him as, like, our best friend who makes us feel good and provides for our needs. Um, and so I think if we have that idea, we may find the um, idea of Jesus going to war to be a little unexpected, but that's exactly what people expect the Messiah to do. They expected the Messiah to be a warrior. Many Jews thought that uh, the Messiah would come and triumphantly free them from Roman, Roman rule. But again, Jesus defies expectations here. That's not what he does. Uh, Jesus has a much bigger enemy to deal with than the Roman Empire. Let's continue in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
So Jesus doesn't begin his ministry on earth by going out and preaching or performing miracles. The first thing that Jesus does is go straight to war with Satan. We read that the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. The war has begun and Jesus meets the enemy on his home turf. He spends 40 days in the remote wilderness, depending entirely on the Father to endure both physically and spiritually. And again, Mark skimps on a lot of details here, but we're told that Jesus was with the wild animals. And so, like, this isn't like, oh, Jesus was hanging out with some animals. Like, it's not a petting zoo. Like, this is sh- to show that uh, Jesus was in a dangerous situation. You know, he was seemingly alone in the wilderness, in the uncertainty, in the unknown. But this is where the Spirit had led him to. This is what he had came for, to wage war against Satan. Christian, if you've been filled with the Spirit, you've also been called to battle. We're not called to a life of comfort, but one of submission and dependence on God as we actively battle against Satan's reign in this world. And that often means walking through the wilderness, into the unknown, whether willingly or not. You know, so sometimes we find ourselves under attack. You know, we face hard circumstances and everything seems to be stacked against us. You know, we feel alone in the wilderness. In these moments, we can feel hopeless and tempted to forsake our Savior and follow the world for the, our, the sake of our own comfort and happiness. But other times, God is calling us to be on attack. You know, perhaps you felt God drawing you into the unknown, into a situation that you don't feel equipped for. You know, maybe it's quitting your comfortable job to take a pay cut and serve in a place that God's calling you to. Or maybe it's starting a gospel conversation with that coworker who relentlessly makes fun of Christians. God often draws us to the places where we're uncomfortable to force us to be dependent on him. When life is easy and it's comfortable and we have all of our needs provided for and we're not facing challenging circumstances or conversations, we don't really need God. You know, we've got it covered. We can do it on our own. But when we find ourselves in those times where we're not in control, where we're in over our heads, when we don't have all the answers, that's when we truly see God at work in our lives. Because when God brings us through the wilderness, when he uses us to accomplish his purposes, he's the only one who could possibly get the credit. So whether you're in a season of life where you feel like you're under the enemy's attack, or you feel like God is calling you to something bigger than you can handle, take heart and trust his control in your life. And take comfort knowing that Jesus has been in our shoes and that he's already won the battle. That same spirit that helped Jesus endure in the wilderness, the one who gave him the strength to fight temptation, the one who miraculously provided for his needs, that's the same spirit that resides in us. So embrace the unknown, fight the battle, and be ready to see God glorified in your life. As we continue to read through Mark, we'll find that this isn't the end of Jesus' war against Satan. In fact, that's what this entire story is about. It's about Jesus battling the effects of sin and Satan's rule in this world. But we also see that Jesus didn't fight alone, which brings us to our last point, that Jesus calls us to battle. So let's continue reading in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So just as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, we see that he calls his first disciples. And again, we see that the men that he calls aren't who we would have expected. Jesus calls two sets of brothers to be his disciples. He calls Simon, who's also known as Peter, uh, later on, and then uh, his brother Andrew, and then two brothers, James and John. And so both sets of brothers are fishermen, you know, working in their family trade. They are probably fairly successful fishermen, you know, living a pretty simple, comfortable life. But, you know, there's nothing special or remarkable about them. You know, most people probably wouldn't have noticed them out of like a literal sea of 
other fishermen in their boats doing their job. But we read that as he's passing by, Jesus sees them. And in this moment, Jesus doesn't see them for who they are, just these men in their boats, but he sees them for who they, who, who they could become. He sees the potential of these men to join in and carry on his mission. So I don't know about you, but I find it extremely comforting to know that, the, that Jesus doesn't see my value in my current circumstances or in my broken sinfulness, but rather in my potential for what he could do in my life. You know, Jesus didn't give these men a list of prerequisites before they could follow him. You know, he didn't tell them to clean up their lives and get their acts together first. Uh, you know, they're fishermen. They're probably not the um, you know, most moral people. <laughs> um, he didn't test them to see how well they understood scripture and make sure that they you know, knew, um, knew everything, knew how had all the right answers. He didn't run a background check on them to make sure they hadn't done anything too bad, or that they were you know, not good enough to follow him. He simply just calls them right there, right where they are. He simply just tells them to follow him. And the call to be Jesus' Jesus's disciples today is no different than it was in this moment. You know, there's often this feeling that we have to be good enough before we can follow Jesus. But friends, the beauty of the gospel is that we can never be good enough. That's the whole point. Christ meets us where we are, and he calls us to follow him. Flaws and all. He invites us into his mission, into the battle, even though we're unqualified and unequipped. But as we follow him, and as he walks through life with us, he equips us and he cleans us up. There's an abundance of grace in the call to follow Christ. But ultimately, we still have to respond to that call. And these disciples responded to Jesus' call in the exact same way that we should. They immediately dropped their nets and followed him. They left behind their families, left behind their comfortable lives. They abandoned everything they'd ever known to follow Jesus. And this is the appropriate way to respond to Christ's call in our lives. And whether that's calling you to follow him for the first time, or if you're a Christian that he's calling into a new battle. The appropriate response is just to say yes and follow him with reckless abandon. These men, they saw that Jesus was good. They saw that he was trustworthy. And they knew that he could give their life purpose. They were completely aware of their flaws. They knew that they were ill-equipped. They knew that they weren't your traditional idea of a disciple. And they knew they didn't have all the right answers. But they didn't let that stop stop them from responding to that call. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you, how will you respond to Jesus' call to follow him into war. You know, it's so easy to make excuses, to get caught up in our worlds, uh, and just to cling so dearly to the comfortable little lives that we've made for ourselves. But Christ is calling us to more than that. And he's calling us to follow him into the wilderness, into the unknown. And he wants to use us for his glory. So will you say yes and allow him to use you? And that looks different for all of us. Uh, you know, if you've never answered the call to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning with Jesus' words in verse 15, to repent and believe in the gospel. And that's a simple message that Jesus came to preach, and it's the same one that he's calling you to today. He's calling you to repent or to turn away from your sinful life. And he's calling you to drop that net that you hold on to so tightly and find your identity and comfort in. But he's not just calling you to turn away from sin. He's calling you to turn to him, to believe, to follow him. He wants to meet you right where you are, to walk with you through the battle, and to help you be victorious for the glory of God. And Christian, if you find yourself complacent and comfortable today, consider what God may be calling you to. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan, we read in other accounts that he was, being, he was tempting him with comfort. He was tempting him to turn from his dependence on God. Have you given into that temptation? Are you relying on yourself and your abilities to get through life? Or are you allowing God to use you to go into the unknown to battle the enemy? Have you put God in a box? Or are you trusting him to do the unexpected in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth from your word this morning. 
We thank you that you work in unexpected ways and that you came to bring victory over Satan and that you invite us to join you in the battle. Lord, help us to have the faith that we need to respond to that call. Help us to trust you when we find ourselves in the wilderness. And give us the strength to battle temptation. Lord, I pray that you would continue to be with us this morning as we worship you and give in song. I pray these things in your name. Amen.